getting like extremely high before bed and then just like watching space cowboys on the <laughs> ipad like tilted <laughs> like, and molly was like falling asleep to the sounds of it and she like really enjoyed it she's like i she because she she like claims now she really likes space cowboys from what she's listened to you know through um, osmosis yeah it's very yeah. relaxed yeah it is totally. like a warm blanket you know it is yeah. It really is. Yeah, no, so that was that was quite nice. And I actually like liked it, I mean, mainly because of that, but quite a bit more this time around, too. Um, I mean, I enjoyed it when we watched it in March, because we watched it on your porch, if you remember yeah, that. Yeah, we had a blast. Yeah. And yeah, I really enjoyed it, but I also thought, like, give me a break at times. And this time around, wow. I was like, oh, no, this is... Yeah, stop yourself. Yeah, but every yeah. Clint movie, good or bad, still has give me a break moments, mm-hmm. you know? Totally, yeah. yeah. But I don't know, there's something of, there's something about this one that's like... I don't know, This just the stuff about aging felt, like, a lot more sincere this time around. Not that I read it as insincere before, but it it, it stood out so much more watching it's because it. you're a little bit older. Yeah, I'm a little it, bit older. It makes <laughs> me think of uh, what Steve McFarlane said on Twitter, which was, uh, Clint's been making his retirement speech for 30 years. Hang it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that really is true, like... But also what makes, yeah. you know, his continued success and just the fact that he still makes movies even more amazing because he just keeps making these swan songs. Yeah. And it's like, all right, and it's time for another one, yeah. you know? Like, cry macho, time to get reflexive. It's like, dude, you did that in 20 other movies already. Just like two years ago. <laughs> right? Yeah, no, honestly, I mean, yeah. watching watching Gran Torino uh, not that long ago, like we watched it a couple of months ago, oh, God, and it yeah, is yeah, just like, really. it's screamingly obvious that he thought that that was going to be his last starring role. Yeah. Yeah. That like he's like it was like so self consciously like I'm done. Like this he is my big dude, even final White Hunter statement. Black Heart feels like that, yeah. and that was thirty <laughs> yeah. years ago. He's yeah. Now that you bring it up, he has had probably the the longest going away tour of any artist <laughs> yeah. like in history. Easily, yeah. <laughs> I mean, props to Steve for pointing that out, but it's it's very true. It's like one of those athletes. It's like Brett Favre. How many times did that guy retire? Yeah. You know, and then be like, well, now I'm the quarterback of the New York Jets. It's like, what? The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders, and I am one of your hosts. I'm joined here again, as always, with... Andrew Stasulis. And... Eric Marsh. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us chooses a theme and then the other two hosts pick films in response to that theme. It was my turn this week to pick the topic and 
I've spent a lot of time lately re- reflecting on um, my youth. You know, there's, this, I guess, for our listeners, they should know that th- there is a bit of an age gap between me and the boys here. I, I think I'm, I'm almost, I'm maybe 10 years yeah. younger than, than no, you. No, you're 65 years old. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I will have a heart. Yeah, so the, that's the only reason I'm eligible to be on the pond is because I have the heart of a 65 year old man. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A sp- real space cowboy. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. There's been like a lot of, you know, life things for me lately, right? Like I was as uh, loyal listeners would know, I, I've recently been married. And I, so I, you know, just being apart from everyone for over a year and then like kind of getting together in that those brief summer months where everything kind of felt okay again. Uh, we all got together for the wedding and it was just, I don't know, the, the passage of time felt a little more severe to me uh, just because there were so many people I hadn't seen for so long. And so I don't know, I, I guess I'm, I myself am entering a phase of my life where I am now actually starting to think about aging, uh, which was something that in my you know early 20s had never crossed my mind, really, at least oh, in- the difference between your early 20s and your late 20s. Oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, Jesus. you know, it's it's nothing catastrophic, but it is just something that it does actually like register with me. And I, you know, there's also something too of like seeing my parents get older and like that becoming more noticeable for me. And I was noticing it when I was returning to um like older home movies. And that was what sort of inspired this week was my like sort of return looking back at some old high eight tapes. I was like transcribing them for my family so they could we could watch them. And yeah, so I was, you know, thinking about portraits of childhood and how even when I was making movies as a kid, I was sort of like accidentally making portraits of childhood, just like of me and my sister and like and my family together. So I challenged the boys here to to bring me some of that. And, you know, they certainly did. So I, I, I guess, Marsh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you brought to the table? Sure. I brought the 1934 film No Greater Glory directed by Frank Borzaghi. This is a pre-code film about kids who play war in a empty lumberyard, or not empty, but kind of vacant lumberyard. And the film specifically centers on the Paul Street boys, who are this gang of young children in Budapest, but also kind of the Lower East Side. What's the difference in a Hollywood movie? Um, and it's about, yeah, the, 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 the sort of goings on of this gang and their turf war with the older boys, the red shirts who want to steal their lot from them. Uh, and then it also deals specifically with you know, a couple of the kids in the gang, uh, namely Nemechek, who is ostensibly the hero of the film, who is this sort of pipsqueak uh, wannabe. He's the uh, the joke is he's the only private in their army except for the dog. Uh, and so you, you follow you follow him. Hector, right? Yeah, Hector, Dog's Hector the Hector. dog. That's yeah. right. And you follow, you know, this sort of conflict uh, over the lumber yard, and that's it. And it's a very strange film, I guess, in in Borzaghi's filmography. And so for people who don't know, Borzaghi is one of the, you know, all-time great film directors, one of the, those guys who started in the 1910s and directed for decades, right, and sort of saw the entire creation uh, of cinema happen around him. He did, wasn't he the first recipient of the Best Director Academy Award? 
I believe that's correct. I think 1927, so, yeah. Borzegi was the first person to win yeah. the Best Director Oscar. And he really, yeah, he really like had this career that built and, and peaked in the late silent era and then peaked even further throughout the 30s and 40s with the sound films that he made. And this is one of the, hun- you know, of the hundreds of films that, that he directed, over 100 films. And he's a director most known for melodrama and also for a kind of transcendent spirituality. And I would say both of those things are in this film, albeit it's not your typical Borzegi romance that he's often known for. But this film sort of fits into a cycle of films that he did in the 30s, throughout the 30s, which are like his period of like anti-war, anti-fascist films. So he did A Farewell to Arms, he did No Greater Glory, then he did Three Comrades, and then of course The Mortal Storm, which is an anti-Nazi film from 1940, which at the time was probably the most progressive film MGM had ever made, simply because it was a a full-on attack against uh, the Nazis. So, yeah, it's kind of an outlier in his career, but it's a film that, to me, evokes a certain, you know, element of childhood for me, sort of playing war or even just, you know, playing with G.I. Joe's. Look, I'm a, you know, I'm a white guy that grew up in the suburbs, right? So this idea of, yeah, this sort of like, you know, this make-believe sort of war that these kids engage in is is very fun for me. And this is, a, you know, one of those films that I just like randomly watched on TCM and I was like, this is unlike anything I've ever seen. It really is to mm-hmm. me just a very unique film. I mean, there are barely adults in it, you know, and it's just kids running around, playing war, saluting each other, <laughs> uh, spying on rival gangs and, and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's no greater glory. It's funny that you mentioned that to you. It, you know, you're talking about like um, Borzegi being known for these like romances. And in a way, this is sort of kind of ties in. I mean, like many of our films do to the bad romance topic that we once <laughs> did, because you could sort of, you know, view this film as a bunch of young men you know, in in a dangerous love affair with war. Uh, well, itself. this is this is a this is a bromance. That's true. That's true. You know? Yeah, it could be. I think the romance can be brought in on uh, multiple levels there. Yeah, look, I'm open to interpreting this uh, that way because, yeah, it, it is it is all about love and maybe even yeah, sort of like religious kind of love as well in this very strange movie that mm-hmm. we'll that we'll unpack. And there's also a bit of perverse religious love in the film you selected, Andy. Uh, tell us a little <laughs> bit about about that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I would actually uh, say that I, I think they're also connected in the sense of of uh, war, you know, and playing war. Because in in the film that I chose, 1974's My Little Loves directed by Jean Ustache. It's the sort of war we all go through with adolescence and the hormones raging inside us. The war within. The war within, yeah. The war of, of insecurities, of, of being unsure of our body and the world that spins around it, you know? But yeah, this is a film that, to me... Uh, when you chose the topic, I, I had sort of thought about uh, a few other films that are, are movies I really liked when I was a kid. 
about kids, mm-hmm. you know, and that's sort of where my head had originally gone. And then as I sat and I thought more about, you know, being a kid again and growing up and the things that I felt and that I experienced, this film just just started just just pounding inside my head again. Um, I first saw this film on a sort of, I guess, class field trip, you could argue, that I took in uh, grad school. I went to the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, and our professors one day just announced that they were showing this very little scene, very seldom scene, uh, Ustash film called My Little Loves at one of the cinematheques in, in Edinburgh, and they were like, they ordered us to go. <laughs> we were like told we had to go see it. Uh, which was a really amazing experience, and this film just completely wrecked me, completely shattered me. I had no idea what I was going in for. It was my first time seeing a film by Jean Ustache. I didn't even know who the hell he was, to be honest with you. Um, and boy, did I learn after <laughs> seeing this film. Um, this is the story of, a, of an adolescent boy named Daniel who lives uh, when the film opens with his grandmother in a sort of small rural town. And the opening of the film just kind of establishes his existence as this sort of nice, young adolescent boy who's trying to figure out what it means to be a nice, young adolescent boy. Uh, and, you know, he's sort of awkwardly fumbling through his life, but it's it's a pretty nice existence that it, it kind of, uh, that kind of gets introduced to us. However, that all gets shattered uh, very dramatically for him and for us, I would say, the audience, when his mother uh, returns, his sort of estranged mother, right? He's been living with his grandmother, but then one day, suddenly, out of the blue, his mother returns and wants him to come live with her and her Spanish boyfriend, Jose, or Jose, as we would say here, uh, in the city. And it's not really clear what city they go to, but it's some... I think it's Narbonne. Narbonne, yeah. He gets taken to a, a city, right, to live in this cramped apartment with his his mother, who he seems to barely even know, really. Um, she's been very absent from his life. And quickly then he's forced to mature in a very raw, very intense, very naturalistic way. Um, he's taken out of school. He's told that school is too expensive and he's got to go to work. So they send him to work. He becomes a, an apprentice with a, with a, like a moped mechanic, a guy who works on like scooters and, and bikes and mopeds. And, um, he continues to, to try to grow, but this time now really kind of left to himself on his own as a, as an adolescent boy now in this city with a mother who's very, different, very absent emotionally compared to his grandmother. And the film just kind of follows that, that experience for him. And it's really about that. It's a sort of coming of age film, uh, I guess would be a good way of summing it up. I mean, I suppose any film about portraits of childhood, you could say, are coming of age films. But this one, to me, really holds a, a very special place in my heart when I think of coming of age films, because I think the portrayal of that, of of growing, of maturing that you see in this film is one of the most powerful I've ever experienced. And, you know, it's, it's a shame that Ustash is not 
really well known, uh, particularly in the United States these days. I think he's a very niche filmmaker. I think that's partly because his career was cut very short. I mean, this is only the second feature he made. He only made two features. The other one, I think, is the more well-known, The Mother and the Whore. Yeah, and uh, like a like a bad cinephile, it's the only Eustache film I've seen. Yeah, I mean, until it's, now, well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, and he had. I mean, he's only made the two features. He has done shorts, of course. He has, yes, well, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. he had done shorts as well. But you know, he was a sort of fringe kind of contemporary of mm-hmm. the new wave, the French new wave. Although he wasn't like a a charter member, I guess you could say, of the new wave. And I think the mother and the whore is often referred to as a sort of like you know, as kind of like the post-punk film of the new wave movement, you know, it sort of just came while the new wave movement was really in like mid-swing. But yeah, he's his movies haven't really gotten a lot of play, certainly not in the United States of America. They're very rare. Um, I don't think that there's a Blu-ray or a DVD of this. And yeah, just when, you know, I was so happy that when the topic came up, this film just came like roaring back into my brain and I was so excited to bring it in. Also, selfishly because I knew neither of you had seen it and and it was sort of one that I had over you guys and was very like finally happy to 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 do that to bring that one in and what a treat it was yeah certainly yeah, yeah it was really incredible being um introduced to this work I'm I'm so glad you picked it I, I mean both films really I, it was a it's a fascinating pairing to to say the least but specifically I think you know I feel like you hit on something really key with My Little Loves and that's how well it functions as a coming of age film and I think at least from my reading while watching it like my biggest takeaway was I think the reason it works so well is that the perspective of the coming of age really truly to me does not feel like it's the perspective of an adult defining what a coming of age is or that the Mm -hmm. film has this preconceived idea of the age you are coming to or like reaching right like so much of the film is truly just his perspective and everything is sort of like taken at face value the way that our protagonist is like seeing the world basically if that makes any sense oh yeah I mean, it makes total sense. I mean, we've talked about this before. I think I mentioned this in one of the the other episodes. You know, when Deleuze defines, like, the hero of the time image, and he says it's not the agent, it's not the actor, it's the seer. And I think this film almost single-handedly, like, proves that point. Because so much of this film, it's very quiet. It's very different than The Mother and the Whore, which is, like... A, a nearly four-hour talk fest, mm-hmm. monologue fest, yeah. right? Jean-Pierre it's like a, Yeah, it's very raw and unwieldy, and this is very composed and fragmentary. Yes. While being extremely precise, though, too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it really shocked me, having now seen both features, where one, again, is like this extremely raw, and not to say that, look, this film isn't raw in its own way, but this film reminded me of Brisson. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's the Almendros, like, natural light, but the way the way he, he focuses in with such precision, I mean, it's incredible. Like, whether it's the dolly shots that are just constantly following this kid throughout this city, or just these very precise, you know, sort of portraiture, which, like, Almendros, you know, all day, I could, I could watch yeah. this movie. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's it was really, yeah, it was just so different um, from Mother and the Horror that I was pleasantly surprised in that way, you know? Yeah, I think the Brisson connection is really key because... 
it is a film that is like extremely precise and because of its precision it's like sort of actively not commenting on so much of what's going on it's not like providing an, a, this adult perspective onto these images and i also think that one of the things that's so powerful about like some of those dolly shots and like th- that brissanian quality is that there's this very like natural life flow to everything i guess and it makes like every little there's so much routine in the film you see a lot of like things happen more than once like where if he's going visiting to the park or just like sort of day-to-day routines and it's sort of that beauty of childhood where anytime something is slightly different you notice it very clearly because everything leading up to that had been so precise it's sort of like a proustian flashback in reverse like you can Mm -hmm. tell that you're witnessing childhood and it's those little things that 30 years from now are going to like take him back to that very moment like these inconsequential little details uh are so vivid Mm -hmm. yeah i think so much of the film is watching the process of learning the process of growing of a growing awareness of the world around you um you know in the beginning he's in this sort of small very isolated kind of rural suburb or town uh and you know his world is very small so for him it's like you're saying those kinds of routines that we see him taking part in are very well worn paths for school yes church school play with the kids down the street yeah absolutely and then when he gets to the city when he's sort of ripped out of this idyllic young sort of nice like existence that he has and thrust into the big city where everything is new the people are new the the streets are new you know we watch him watch we watch him learn we watch him grow we watch him experience things for the first time and then take that information and do something with it in the next moment right mm-hmm. like you're saying there's a sort of repetition where he'll see someone, you know, make a pass on a girl because he's an adolescent. And so much of this film is really also this boy's kind of hormonal, you know, awakening as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, He's quite thirsty throughout. Yes, yes. You know, and he'll, like, watch somebody, like, make a pass on a girl. And then, you know, he's just watching, he's witnessing, and he's he's categorizing the moves and the, the methods. And then in the very next moment, you'll see him try that, attempt it, you know, like go through the motions and do the same thing. Sometimes to positive effect, but more often than not, like, you know, <laughs> sort of awkward kind of encounter that he has. But again, that's like, that's learning and growing. And, you know, that's why this film is so powerful to me as a as a portrait of childhood and one that I can connect to. Like you said, it's not some just sort of like Hollywood bullshit kind of like, this is what it means to be a kid, where I'm being like told what it means to be a kid. Like I'm watching this and I'm I'm also going back to the same images of like the first time I told a girl that I loved her, right? The first time I, I kissed somebody, you know? Like all those things. And and quite frankly, so many of them now when I look back, they're they're embarrassing as fuck, you know? They're they're so embarrassing. But like that's the beauty of it. You know, he's sort of embracing the the humiliation that we experience in this world and being being sort of thrust into this world and and told to grow and to in some cases 
grow up very quick. Yeah, well, it's particularly very harrowing in this film because Daniel does not have very good adults in his life. And that makes his just confusion with the world even that much greater, right? I mean, he's pulled out of school for no good reason, essentially. And yeah, he's he's forced to grow up very fast, and he does because of, you know, these things that are just so out of his, his control. And obviously, he has no father to speak of that we know of. He's, like, asked at one point, yeah, where's your dad? And he just, you know, typical. It's like a, he just looks down and it fades out of the scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I did want to ask you guys, I guess, because it is interesting thinking about this film is full of like fade outs and short scenes, right? That does achieve over time this fragmentary memory effect. Mm-hmm. But there's like there's no like text in the film of like I'm reflecting or, or whatever like it doesn't situate it but like there is voiceover though in the in the past tense mm-hmm. so like the film while it doesn't make a show of it is like a just a memory mm-hmm. at least it felt like that to me yeah. Only, you know not in your face about it but just subtly just the rhythms of it right? yeah absolutely I mean. Ustash, you know, had said at a certain point, like, you know, almost all of his work was autobiographical to an extent. Um, And this movie, I think, you know, for me, it's so obvious, like, that this was his childhood, you know? Yeah, That this was like, like you said, you know, like this was what he experienced and he went through. And, you know, you bring up a really interesting point here, Marsh, because it occurred to me, there's a scene um, later in the film where now when Daniel is living in the city and he's sort of walking around and he's he's witnessing things and he's he's doing a lot of people watching, uh, he sits down on this like park bench. There's a scene where young Daniel sits down on a park bench and he's just sort of like watching the girls stroll by and he's watching lovers walk by. But then he also looks across at a man sitting on a bench a man who's sitting almost exactly as he's sitting and i don't know if either of you noticed but that's jean Gustache. Yeah. <laughs> oh it on the was bench. yes yep. oh wow yeah that didn't click for me in this really kind of interesting moment he's looking at himself basically and he's like sort of watching himself and i had this crazy moment where i sat there and i just went like like it's him like that he's looking at himself like is he this is what he's going to be now when he's in his 30s or whatever he's just on that side he's sitting there that's what he looks like and he's he's also looking at the people going by you know it's also a peculiar moment because there's that mirror in the action where a couple walks by and when they kiss um the woman's hat falls off and they pick it back up and then it cuts back to the younger version and then when we're back at eustache the couple then returns this time from the yep. other side of the frame and the same hat gag happens. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very, it's such a playful moment. God, I love it. And you know, I, I did read that the film, which opens and, cl- and closes in this kind of like rural, you know, rural French town or suburb, uh, that's Pesach, which is 
where he grew up outside of Bordeaux. So like in terms of, yeah, working in these autobiographical elements, it's like literally this small little town that he has a spatial and geographical like link to. And then also we should mention throughout the film, there is uh, a bit of cinephilia as young Daniel uh, is often going to the movies and commenting on posters uh, and, and other things. And I did make a, yeah, like I had to like, write down I made a list of all the movies uh, that are in the film and in what I can tell very simply Eustache likes Cecil B. DeMille and Bud Boddicker <laughs> yeah uh-huh. yeah with the, with the specific disdain against Paramount films yeah That's dude right. that bit's so great there's the little kids and they're like they're looking at the poster and one of the guys is like oh it's a Paramount movie and then one of the other kids is like Paramount movies are dumb <laughs> and then somebody's like have you even seen a Paramount movie well no you know it's, like, it's great these just like these opinions about, but that's part of it right these like Having these, uh, that's so much of being that age, you know, is having this sort of like sureness about things Mm -hmm. that you know nothing about, you know, but having to play it as if you do, right? That you're an authority, you know, I'm not just some little baby anymore. I know about Paramount movies. They're dumb, you yeah. know? And it's like, well, what the fuck are you... T- <laughs> like, come on, man. And also, yeah. like, the confidence that comes with um, that age range, too. I mean, there's that... There's a funny, like, bit of, of mirroring early on when there's... They go to, like, the circus, and they watch a guy as he's, like, you know, swallowing knives from, like... The, or he's swallowing the bayonet from a rifle down his throat, mm-hmm. and then he fires it, and then, of course, he, he smashes all the glass, and he, like, lowers himself on it. And then, of course, you know... He's quite taken by that, so he decides to put on a little show for all of his friends later, you know? And it's, again, he he brings, like, the same type of gravitas. He's like, I can do that. Like, I know I can create this illusion. And then, you know, it's so funny because then, like, that kind of confidence and performative quality, like, matched with the Brissanian, um, both, like, precision and acting styles. There's, like, a that sequence in particular is, is quite amusing. Yeah, none of the kids react to his version of the circus glass thing he like does it they're all just sitting in this field and he's just like thank you and they're all just like looking at him like you know just blank yeah uh, it's it's incredible yeah no horror no <laughs> smiles they don't clap or anything like that like their yeah. faces like it, like not a muscle moves in their faces even after he shows them his bloodied back which is just an illusion of course as well he had his buddy like draw lipstick all over his back to mimic all the glass cuts <laughs> yeah um, but yeah, yeah no, right they, in front of them too like yeah. they're they're not even like hiding that very well you know it's so <laughs> like, obvious because again it, like in moments like that are very brissanian because it's like very slow and then like the sound is very key like you hear the lipstick on his back you hear the little crinkle of each piece of glass as he's moving it so the sharp ends don't poke him yeah and you know not to like get too far ahead of ourselves but you know i i, I think that you know there, there's a lot of to me um similarities between these two films in terms of what they're saying about being a kid and mimicking, you know, Mm -hmm. performing a thing that you've seen adults do, right? Or that you've seen in movies or you've read about in books. And again, why it's so, both of these films uh, were so powerful to me on that level of, you know, a, a portrait of childhood because I think about the things that I would do, you know, when I saw 
some magician on TV and then all of a sudden I want to be a magician, you know, or I see, you know, a cop show and then I want to be a cop for Halloween, you know, like, I, I you know, mm-hmm. th- those kinds of things, you know, or we see somebody dress a certain way and then, you know, we want to dress that way because the cooler older kids dress that way. Uh, it's, it's so real in the way that our brains develop for me like it's so honest in that depiction you know because that's how we learn that's how we grow we see things we we are interested in them we're intrigued by them we're moved by them whatever and then without even really understanding them or what goes into them yeah we attempt them on our own you know whether it's a magic show or it's making out with a girl or whatever it is right (laughs) yeah no I completely agree and it's so it's really funny for me um just because I like always had a camera around when I was um probably from like second grade on like that's when I got my first like camcorder and I was like always filming everything and even before then too my parents were like filming everything like we have so many home movies from like different years of my life and it's funny just seeing the video evidence of exactly what you're describing. Like in returning to them now, I'm seeing yeah, myself. Yeah, you wishing you were Bond. Totally, yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's, the, yeah that's like the, the great one where I'm running around Chicago dressed up as Bond with my little pistol, you know, and my parents are like, you can't take out the toy gun on the streets on Michigan Avenue. <laughs> um, but no, yeah, there's like so much of that. And especially in My Little Loves, like, you know, just like all those stunts, right, where they're like climbing up the tree and then hopping off, you know, how far can you jump and things like that without getting hurt? That was something I did all the time, like climbing on jungle gyms in like really incoherent ways, like seeing if I could cross an entire playground without ever touching like the floor of the playground, like just walking on the railings and things like that. But yeah, it, it's it, it, that's definitely, I think, the way both of these films work in terms of the way like children are defining themselves and presenting themselves while also then figuring out who they are is because they're latching on to something and then acting it out with such confidence. Well, I like how that's reflected in in Daniel because again, it's, you know, no attention is really drawn to this stuff. You just kind of kind of like pick up on it. But there's, you know, a couple different people that he sort of gravitates to and from throughout the movie. And initially, he meets this father and son who are fishing uh, when he moves to the city. And he sort of strikes up like this casual relationship with them and he ends up going to the cinema with the son who's this sort of like husky like academic type like high school aged kid (laughs) and uh he you know they get out of a movie and he's like declaring like you know like what he's like action movies suck you know i don't don't like adventure films (laughs) yeah i don't like adventure films that's what he says and he's got this sort of like yeah like he's wearing brown tweed or whatever and this is like then in the phase where daniel's wearing like all brown and he's wearing this sort of like academic get up and then later much later in the film daniel becomes friends with the cat cafe guys Mm -hmm. and the cafe guys are like you know linen like button-up shirts very flashy yeah very flashy uh type of style and then daniel very quickly adopts that and they of course you know mock him for it as he burns a uh, cigarette hole in his fancy pants on his first day out wearing (laughs) wearing the new get up but yeah i mean it is a film that just so richly captures those embarrassments 
and the confusions and were very intimate with him as an as a viewer and as an audience but so much is still just ambiguous and i think eustache really thrives in the ambiguity of everything right and like we're privy a little bit to his subjectivity through voiceover but again this is a character who has a very hard time connecting with other people and so it's like it's 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 also it's also like an incredibly moving picture of loneliness as well Mm -hmm. because though through the course of this, you know, two-hour film, we meet a lot of people. Daniel meets a lot of people. I mean, he's just a boy wandering around in a city, you know? From the minute his mother, you know, steals him away from from his friends and his loving grandmother and then tells him, like, why don't you go wander around the city a bit and, and learn the streets and find your way home? I mean, she just, like, right away is like, get out of here. Go wander around the city. And he, and he starts to do that. You know, he encounters so many people, but... You know, the prevailing, the prevailing, I think, thread throughout this film is like him walking alone yeah, or mm-hmm. sitting alone, you know, kind of creating these temporary connections with people, but never really getting much past the surface. Um, all of his encounters with people are very superficial. And, and I don't necessarily mean that in a sort of like negative way. It's just he's he's forced out of this sort of desperation to connect to try to like engage with people oh yeah but it's a very cold world that he encounters and even when he does seem to meet a person who likes him or is willing to build a relationship with him and a connection with him circumstances kind of rip him out of that and pull him away from this person you know there's this really beautiful sort of first love i mean to be honest with you there's a lot of first love moments and and again i think that's part of the reason why this this film is called my little loves you know because it really is this series of small love affairs that he has with girls you know starting as you mentioned in this scene in the church so very early in the film he's he's a sort of like an altar boy in this catholic church and and he's walking behind this girl in the church and he's looking at her and he's like, in his voiceover, he's like, I was getting an erection suddenly, you know? And then I, I pressed myself against this girl, right? And just sort of like feeling this this strange sensation inside him and trying to act on it without really understanding it or knowing it, you know? And that's, I think, like his first like little love that we're kind of introduced to yep. because then nothing, you know, like he, the girl's just kind of like, what the fuck, man? You know, like, right. <laughs> you know, and and he has that, you know, uh, there's other scenes where he'll he'll meet a girl at like, you know, there's like a fair going on and he he tries to sort of brush up against another girl and reach out and hold her hand. And he's sort of like trying to stroke her 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 leg to get her attention. And then suddenly she's gone. And he's like, I don't know if the mother was aware of what I was trying to do, but she was running out of there like she saw the devil, you know, or this girl near the end, you know, when he's he's sort of in this kind of southern sort of seaside town that the boys go to, the cafe boys go to. And he actually like is making out with this girl and she seems really, you know, into him in this moment. And then she's like, will you be here next Sunday? And he's like, sure. And then he's like, in my mind, he's like, 
I knew I wasn't going to be there. So that was it. Right. And that's it. You know, he's gone. And, and there's so many of those. Yeah. There's a scene early on when he's still in the, the, you know, with his grandmother in the first town and he, he passes by the girl from church and she has mistaken him for someone else, which she's done a couple times. And she's like, Christian, Christian. And he stops and looks at her and instead of, you know, being like, no, I'm Daniel. What's up? Hey, you know, I got a boner in church. I mean, he doesn't have to say he doesn't have to say that. But yeah. uh, it's just like he stops and walks away. And the voiceover is, you know, I should have done something, but I was afraid. Yeah. And you're just like, this kid is fucked up. You know, he's so lonely and like he's so desperate at times for a connection, any connection, any kind of love sexual or otherwise yeah. because he's not getting that you know uh, and it's it's moments yeah. like those that make the the ambiguity of the narration so intriguing and perplexing because this all is in the past tense but it's the voice of the child and again i think it's really key to like i you know i mentioned it before but to hit on the experience of watching this film really does not feel like an adult commenting on his youth it really does feel like you're living the experience and going through it without an adult trying to intellectualize his childhood or make like statements thinking back on like, oh, this is how I interpret how I acted at this point. Mm -hmm. Like all of the reflections in the narration feel like very organic responses from him at that age at that point and it is because it's all in past tense it does make you wonder like when are these reflections coming in and like how soon after these lived in experiences are we supposed to take because it does kind of feel like a journal at times too not that it's ever implying that he's like actively writing a journal but you know that's a good point i i think you can read it as like an immediacy almost, you know, mm -hmm. because in many respects, he's sort of, he's reflecting on a thing that like just happened or that in his mind, he suddenly understood, you know? Yeah. I guess it would always have to be in past tense. Like, I don't know why he would ever reflect on it in the present tense. But right. I mean, like, you know, the, somebody says something nice to him and then he's like, in my mind, I knew that wasn't going to go anywhere, you know? And it's like this, this immediate realization he has. And then often, yeah, he just then, wanders off alone and we fade out again, right? This sort of series of, in this series of vignettes. But I think it's, it's important to like also then mention that like so many coming of age films, I think the kind that maybe even you're talking about or that we've seen, they, they tend to try to wrap up the experiences of, of youth and, and of maturation and of growth and stuff like that. They, they try to like wrap that up into then this like bigger adventure that you go on. And it's through that adventure that we grow, you know, like mm -hmm. fucking Goonies or whatever. Right. It's like, we all grew up because of this outrageously phony thing that happened to us. And like, nothing against movies like that. Like they're, they're fun or whatever, but you know, this doesn't need a sort of like external you know, mission or adventure or thing that he has to like go on to to present those lessons. Like they just happened to us. Yeah, even 90 minutes in and when, when there was 30 minutes left of the film, like I had no idea what those final 30 minutes would be about or oh look like. Oh my God, dude. Okay, so like I don't want to like 
spoil another movie on here on this podcast but like <laughs> to that point when the film was heading towards the climax i really thought like is this gonna be a brighter summer day is this gonna like end in a shock because it very easily could and what's like so fascinating again is like how Eustache refuses to like sentimentalize anything. And we're shown some kind of disturbing behavior from him throughout the film. Like very early on in the film, he punches a kid for no reason. Mm-hmm. Later, he fires a cap gun in a girl's face, point blank <laughs> yeah. range. And it looks like a gangster film the way that he shoots it. Oh, like, yeah. Yeah. Because he's like on the back of a motorbike. Yeah. yeah. And it's framed, yeah, it's framed, like, incredible, really close up. It's like Melville, dude. Yeah. <laughs> it's like this girl gets blasted in the face. Exactly. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, some of his, in his desperation, I mean, he's groping girls. He's following them around. Sniffing them. You know? Stalking, and yeah. And, yeah, kind of stalking. And, again, like... Eustache just shows us this, right? And there's never again, yeah, that extra layer of like judgment or analysis. It's just like these little snapshots and we're putting it all together. And so to Ryan's point, like, yeah, when when he's finally like pairing off with the or going after those girls in the seaside town with his friend, his cafe buddy, I was like, this could go a couple of ways, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And like if this ended in in some horrifying thing, like Stabbing. I can can see that, you know? I can see that. Right. But also, again, though, like, the fact that it didn't, and it ends in just, like, this kind of extremely tender and beautiful sequence, and then back to reality, kind of, like, despair involved as he goes back to his grandmother's town uh, for vacation at the end of the film, and sort of, like, tries to pick up where he left off with his old friends, you know, we all, yeah, yeah, we all know what he's gone through, right? You know, and specifically, he's he's learned a lot of hard lessons. Oh yeah, but again, not in, not in a sentimental way. More like uh, he works at this bike repair shop and learns that. Uh, wow, this guy who runs the shop is ripping everyone off <laughs> yeah. and exploiting me, right? Yeah. He learns, you know, uh, those kinds of lessons. Yeah. You know, it... it I'm glad that you brought it up because it really occurred to me this time rewatching the film. I was like just absolutely like devastated when we left the theater. Like I I was in no way shape or form prepared for what I experienced. But this time I you know, I'm sorry. It's starting to become like a, a, a joke how many times I bring up my Deleuze studies, you know. I'm sorry, but Deleuze in you know, his writings on cinema once referred to, you know, he's talking about naturalism in cinema. And he referred to naturalism as a very violent type of cinema. Like he talks about the violence in naturalism. And then in my own mind, when I think I first was, you know, like reading that and that's all Deleuze, you know, when you read it, you have to then think about it for Mm -hmm. fucking six years or whatever. Right. But I was like violence. And I was thinking about movies like, naturalism i'm like it's usually just like a thing where people sort of wander around and talk and nothing really happens what do you mean violent it's like watching this movie and watching no greater glory i i suddenly understood it i finally understood what deleuze meant by the violence of naturalism whoa as you're talking about this film right this is the point that we're making here this is an incredibly violent movie and yet there's no in violence we don't mean like like you're saying like 
stabbings and str- he, he strangled that girl to death after he made out with her. You know, you know right. he was like <laughs> choke her to death, you know? But it's like, man, violence isn't just physical. Violence is emotional. Violence is psychological. Yeah. Violence is spiritual. And the minute we're born in this world, we are being assaulted growing up is a very violent experience being humiliated being embarrassed getting rejected by somebody that you you're you're crushing on you know like your work exploiting you you know your parents not being proud enough of you right it's fucking all violence and and in this film like there are shadows of it and shades of it you know there's hints of it he punches a kid for no reason in the stomach the kids leaving school are all just immediately like wailing on each other with their book bags and i'm like reflecting on the times in my life growing up like man i remember one time i need my brother in the face when he was tying his shoe for no fucking reason whatsoever you know busted his nose life is just a, a violent thing that we go through until we fucking die however that happens to us you know and this movie like man i really now understood what deleuze meant by like the violence of naturalism because this is one of the most violent movies i've ever seen in that sense. Yeah, and you're you're always sort of set up for a, an emotionally violent life, too, when your mother is played by one of the Fassbender regulars. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, it's looking like she's straight yeah. out of a Fassbender movie, right? Like she, Yeah, she looks like she got off set. Like, she was, like, exhausted from a day of, like, Fassbender, like, berating her. And she, like, walked on. It's so fucking awesome, dude. Like, it is... It is such an she's such a ghostly presence in again. This is like Nestor Almendros, like just you talk about another form of naturalism with light. And then she comes in here looking like a fucking ghost, all like white faced, you know, just like yeah. her hair all fucked up. Yeah. Like messy. And, and especially yeah. compared to his grandmother who looks like fucking oh, Donna Reed. Yeah. Cla- she's just like a classic French grandmother. And then, yeah, and then you get, like, the Fassbender mom that comes into the movie. And, I would argue, her boyfriend, Jose, who, like, barely says a fucking word, but is always just staring at Daniel. Like, and Daniel, it's like, I can tell, this guy does not like me at all, you know? And he is, he's just, like, this mean, like, not even mean, he's just, like, this, like, cold, vacant like presence, you know, in this relationship with his mother that a life of hard labor has left Jose speechless and emotionally vacant. Yeah. Yeah. And that point is like rubbed in Daniel's face as well. Very unfairly several times when he, he wants to continue school when he goes to the new town, but it's his mother who refuses because she doesn't want to pay for books and stuff like that. And you know, she says to him, you think Jose wanted to labor on farms all his life? Yeah. Of course not. <laughs> yeah. You know, and yeah. like, what kind of lesson is that supposed to like, you know, well, yeah, what lesson is Daniel being taught by being like, our lives are shitty. And now you have to go work at the bike shop for Jose's yeah. brother. Yeah. And, and he says in the voiceover, even like I had a response for her, but I didn't give it. Yeah. You know, because like, dare. right. Because he would say, like, that's the exact reason why you should send me to school. Yes. So I don't become mm-hmm. Jose. Yeah. You know? And that's a thing that's almost even, like, hidden from the film itself is the fact that Daniel actually loves literature and books. But we're, 
he he's ne- he never finds anyone to engage with about that. So like even that in the film felt like just these little snippets. We see him reading. He has that one exchange where he like over intellectualizes something talking to this girl, yeah. right? But like you know he has this other this inner life that like we're given just the, the you know a glimpse of a snapshot of. Yeah, he has so much to give and yet nowhere yeah. And no one to really give it to. Yeah, because yeah, even like in a brief moment where it seems like that gets his like education gets brought up, uh, he's sort of like mocked um, at the bike shop by Maurice Pilat <laughs> when he's like, you even know the fucking alphabet, yeah. kid? Like, give me the alphabet. And then like, yeah, he he's like, you want me to fucking recite the alphabet <laughs> to you? Like bicycle repairman? And he's like, yes. And then he does. And then the guy's like, that's all wrong. That's not how yeah, we learned it. Yeah. And it's just like... We, you know, I, we would need like an, an actual like French speaker to explain like, you know, the subtleties of that difference, you know? Because I know it's there. Mm-hmm. It's in like the pronunciation because they do pronounce it like slightly differently. Yeah, they pronounce it differently. I wasn't sure if like the gag itself was that he was saying it in this like very like hoity-toity way i guess if pronounced in the alphabet like i couldn't necessarily tell if they're like you know they're just mocking his accent or like the working man's way of like saying the alphabet i don't know well like it's clearly part of like one of the ongoing sort of like thematic things in the film is tradition versus you know tradition and ritual versus you know otherwise right because in this town that he's living or the city he's living in there's a boulevard where people are strolling Mm -hmm. all goddamn day and night and very very french thing to do yeah like everything in this town revolves around like the boulevard and strolling and part of as well part of you know his mother and jose's like you know resentfulness with the people of the town is that jose is separated from his wife but not divorced and so they can't even go strolling because of yeah you know local customs and norms right and again so yeah like those guys in the shop with the alphabet they're just sort of like to me i read it as like we learned it this way back in the day. You learned it another way, you fucking idiot. You know, like, mm-hmm. what's happening to other, yeah. you know, the youth or whatever. Yeah, like, because there's also the conversation that happens there where the, you know, one of the, the the bike shop owner's buddies comes in and is like, man, I just went to a dance for the first time since I got married. I haven't been to a dance hall in forever. I couldn't believe it. I felt like an idiot. I was wearing a suit. Everybody's wearing, you know... Just trousers and shirts, you know? I, I didn't know how to... I, I can't understand these people. When you went to dance, you dressed up, you know? So there is that, this, yeah. like... And and poor Daniel's just sitting there. He's, like, fucking 12 years old. He's like, I don't understand any of this, you know? But there is that, that um, like you said, that sort of clashing of tradition and, and generation. There's even, like, a funny bit at the cafe where, you know, it's sort of these younger guys, and then there's, like, one older guy. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, part of the thing with this movie that makes it somewhat difficult to talk about is that we were kind of mentioning this before we got on the podcast, is that so many characters in the movie are unnamed. Like, we never really Mm -hmm. learn their names. So you kind of have to just, like, sort of describe them. I mean, we never even learn his mother's name. We don't learn his grandmother's name. You know, I'm pretty sure... The first time I heard his name is Daniel was in like the final 10 minutes of the fucking movie, right? But 
like there's this this sort of older guy that hangs out at the pinball and he kind of is like a gigolo it seems the wheeler dealer yeah he's always got a really slick suit on and nice shoes and everything and he's sort of the guy that's kind of trying to like sort of like lead these young cafe hangers uh into like maturity like from his perspective of being like mm-hmm. The cafe guy and there's this funny bit where there's like a kid one of the kids is like playing pinball and he's smoking and he's like playing pinball and then this guy like like lectures him about that he's like hey you don't smoke when you're playing pinball you can't concentrate i don't know what's wrong with you people you know so there's like these weird like clashes that kind of happen from from different generations you know that again it's like that's part of what this film is 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 about in the, in the grander scale. Like we have this sort of like microcosm of Daniel, but we also have like this this portrait of a changing France in 1974 when this film was released of of different generations. Even like the cinema, like at a certain point, they're watching, you know, they're watching some like uh, what is it, uh, Pandora and the Flying Dutchman That's with right. James Mason and Ava Gardner from 1951, and they're seeing this this sort of like love scene that's taking place in a very kind of like, you know, classic Hollywood romanticism on screen. And then he's just like going up behind a girl in the movie theater and just being like, I was blowing on her hair and then just like made her kiss me. It's like, whoa, you know, like (laughs) sex is very different in 1974 than it was in 1950. Well, on certain respects, it's always the same, right? But in other ways, the courting rituals, they change. They certainly Oh, yeah. Have. And I do like, as well, one of the cafe guys, uh, after he gets out of Pandora and the Flying Dutchman, you know, he's like, oh, you saw that? That's an oldie. Yeah. I yeah. like action films, right? And then, yeah. yeah, it's the totally opposite. And so he's, like, yeah, hanging out with these, like, moped pinball guys. Seven, you know, very modern guys, right? all smoking at the cafe. And one thing I very much appreciated about this film is watching a child develop a cigarette smoking habit, which happens (laughs) over the course of the film. Uh, Did you start smoking around his age? No, a little later. I had my first cigarette around that age. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I I got in with some bad kids, and I had my first cigarette (laughs) at that age. I was. I was in junior junior high. So it was it was bad kids. It wasn't like an old guy hanging out at the cafe. I mean, that, like, the, the guys something. that gave me my first cigarette, like they looked exactly like the cafe guys in <laughs> this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, yeah, it's awesome in the movie because, again, like you're saying, it's very like like so many other things in this movie. It's very like unceremonial. Like all of a sudden, there's just a scene where he just lights up. You know, he's like looking out the window at the bike shop, and all of a sudden, he just like pulls out a cigarette and like smokes it. You know, and there's no like. Oh no, I started smoking. It's just like, yeah, now I'm smoking now. I'm fucking working at a bike shop. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm hanging out with old men. Like, yeah, I'm just I... like hanging out at the bike shop watching the same girl making out with different guys on the street corner every night. <laughs> yeah. That's like a really great stretch of little short snippets where it's just, yeah, this whole like voyeur situation when he's closing up at the bike shop. Uh, love that stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's very, I mean, to describe the movie as, like, in general, like, voyeuristic, I think is, like, very, very appropriate. Yeah. You know, you're often, I think, part of why the movie is so affecting, part of why it it sits with you and, and stays with you is because you feel like you're 
privy to things you shouldn't be. You feel like you're seeing things take place that you shouldn't see. You know, whether it's, yeah, him brushing up some against some girl in church with a boner or, yeah, like, <laughs> you know, him locking eyes with this girl who's making out with some guy, you know, like all of it just feels so, so, I mean, what's the word I'm looking for here? Like just um, invasive on a, on a certain level. And yet that's part of, I think, why I connect to it. And, and I, I, I understand this movie so well. And I think that anybody who watches this movie would feel that because all of these things, these sensations that are being presented to us are things that we, in one form or another, like have experienced ourselves just by like going through these same things, like hormones out of fucking control, you know, like being in class and looking at a girl at, you know, when you're 13 and, and just getting that feeling for the very first time of being like, I don't really understand what's happening here, but like, I'm horny, you know, <laughs> like I'm right. turned on or whatever, you know, like, yeah, I mean, that's, I feel like the film is, at its most beautiful when it's also at its most uncomfortable um, because of the way he so perfectly treads that line. I mean, they're just such honest experiences to the point where, yeah, it, it, it like inspires like quite a bit of discomfort just because yeah. like this is just, it's, it's people experiencing in the world in a way that they themselves don't even understand. And I think it's very pointed that he has two sort of inappropriate sexual situations related to the church, right? Because mm -hmm. the second time when he touches the girl's skirt, there's like an all-girls choir. Uh, you know, the St. Mary, St. Marie's choir, like singing this unbelievable song. And it's like tracking all these, these girls in the choir while it's then cutting to the reverse of Daniel, like touching some girl's skirt. Uh, yeah, just total blasphemy shit. Eustache is, is on another level. Yeah. And I think playing into that idea of like, you know, um, the, the, the collision between sort of like Catholic guilt and, yeah. and raging hormones at that age, you know, of like being an adolescent, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a series of, you use the word ambiguity or amb ambiguous, you know, and, and I think like, again, that's, that's why it's so, it's so human because we see him at times be like, a very good boy. You know, we yeah. see him at times in ways where we're like, you are a nice kid, you know? And then we see him do things that are like shitty or, you know, selfish or just very immature, which is understandable. You know, mm -hmm. we've all been there, but he shows us both sides of that because that's what's inside of all of us. We've all done things in our life that we look back at, especially at that age and just kind of like you slap your forehead and you go like, man, what the fuck was I thinking? You weren't thinking anything because you were you were 12, you were 13. You didn't know what the hell was going on, you know? So it's like, are you a good kid? Are you a bad kid? Well, like, yeah, you're both. You still are. You always will be. Yeah, I think there's, again, there's like a... This movie was very enjoyable on, you know, many, many levels. But one of them being just simply it's like vast sort of just open interpretive nature, right? There's like a lot of freedom in how you experience like the movie i thought 
in how at least mm-hmm. in terms of how you feel about certain things and i think yeah like i was reading something ryan i think you'll find this funny but i had read a piece in senses of cinema that was comparing eustache to frederick wiseman most you know specifically more like Le cochon the the eustache documentary which is in mm-hmm. a verite style but even mother and the whore which is just all about like these mundane and even long stretches of just like noticing yeah. things that other filmmakers don't and while this film doesn't have like any stylistic resemblance to like say Wiseman it does have that attention to the mundanity and these details and this like freedom of interpretation that is you know love it love it Private Nemechek step up Attention. Get the slips of paper ready. Captain Boker, well, ever since we started this club, everybody's been an officer but me. Well, an army has to have some private soldiers. You're the smallest, aren't you? Pardon me, but if Chelly didn't wear high heel shoes, I'd be as tall as he is, almost in our bare feet. Silence. Shelly has a bugle, hasn't he? We can't get along without a bugler. And how would it look if our bugler was a private? I can blow calls without a bugle. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, we're again talking about the the violence inherent in naturalism. We can also talk... What about the violence of melodrama? Yeah, the violence of melodrama, without a doubt. But yeah, No Greater Glory, a, a radical formal departure from My Little Loves, without a doubt, right? Like here we have a Hollywood production that is extremely expressive. I, the images that are present in this film are like unbelievable just the way that like everything is is lit in the way that um there's like halos around everybody um there is sort of like a spiritual quality to that too when we could talk a little bit more about that but then at the same time the we talked about the brissanian precision and also sort of like withholding of emotions present in my little loves and here we have a group of children that are all extremely performative and talking as if they're like 40 year old men (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know that was the thing that made me laugh the most while watching was how all of them sounded like adult hollywood actors from the 30s oh yeah they all clearly had the same vocal coaches you know and they've got like hard-boiled dialogue you know it is very like yeah new york lower east side and i do know so like the film is based on a hungarian novel but it was adapted by joe swirling who's from the lower east side and grew up in manhattan so you can tell that yeah like the I'm dead a, end kids yeah it's yeah. got that it's got that dead end kids kind of thing going on and yeah they are all acting tough and and that becomes like very funny throughout the movie because they're just kids and the moments that you're sort of reminded that they're just kids uh, are the funniest like when nemechek can't stop falling in the river when they're on like their spy <laughs> reconnaissance mission but i do want to oh, that poor fun. 
I do yeah. want to comment on the visual stuff you brought up, Ryan. Just a couple things because Borzaghi, of course, rose you know to fame as a director at Fox uh, at the same time as John Ford, and also very famously the same time as F.W. Murnau. Mm. And Ford and Borzaghi both got to study Murnau and how he worked, and they saw how he worked, and they learned a lot from him. And you can see it in in both Borzaghi and Ford's films from this period and well into the into the 30s is that just very expressive or even like lyrical abstraction and expression of the cinematography is yeah sort of straight out of that playbook and one interesting connection is no greater glory was shot by joseph august who founded the asc but was also a longtime fox cameraman and so august also shot the informer the Ah. john ford film from the 30s he shot they they were expendable and so Again, he came out of that Fox tradition as well of this sort of like all these Hollywood guys who were like obsessed with Murnau. And why wouldn't they be? And there are some touches in this film that are just like unbelievable, whether it's the way like fog is used and like light within that fog or light Mm -hmm. shimmering through trees or just like the silhouettes. Yeah, like the ridiculous eye lights like yeah. everyone's just glowing you know yeah those night sequences in particular remind it's funny that i realized i i must i just like made the association one step removed incorrectly because while i was watching it the first thing i thought of was this looks like a 30s john ford movie yeah well same guy um, and shot, then of course though, yeah. i know well but that but then i'm also forgetting that like yeah those are the reason the early 30s john ford movies look the way they do as compared to the rest of his filmography is because that was his big like murnau kick yeah you know like when he was obsessed with that visual style and like that was his like reference point for everything i've said it before i'll say it again you know like hollywood learned just about all their tricks from the german expressionists at that time Mm -hmm. right i mean it's you're pointing it out i mean we've talked about like carl freund and universal as well but i mean like it's amazing you know, when you do go back and look at it, that like, yeah, you start to find out like these guys were all just ripping off the Germans, like yeah. what they were doing, you know, like the Germans really were the first ones who really understood like how to paint with light in the ways that you're seeing here, you know, like you're saying that it becomes lyrical, it becomes poetic in their usage of shadow, of contrast, of soft focus, you know. It is funny because that it almost feels like... um two things that are sort of at odds with each other in the film that I ended up like liking, which is that the film is, is obviously very rhetorical and like pretty obvious with its allegory. Uh, and it's like sort of like anti-war tract, but at the same time, its imagery is so sophisticated and poetic that like both of those things occurring side by side throughout the film, make it uh, like a truly unique experience. I mean, it's, it's also interesting because Again, like talking about these like uh, connections, I think too with other films. Like this film also opens with some some quote stock footage, That's but right. it's from a, a great Universal anti-war film, All Quiet on the Western Front. Yeah, it's like a greatest hits compiled as a montage, and I, I do love yeah the way we're brought into the movie is 
showing you know, showing us clips of the milestone movie sort of like superimposed over each other and then we get this like impassioned plea from this guy who's like about to be taken away and shot and he's just like did they ask me if i wanted to get into this war no they made me fight against my wishes i tell you this war any war at all is a foul and rotten thing and patriotism is a loathsome lie I'm through. Let them stand me up before a firing squad if they like. I tell you. And then we're sort of introduced to the kids and the teachers going on about how nationalism and war are good. Gentlemen, there's nothing finer than patriotism. Nothing nobler than war in defense of the country we love. It's a great match cut, too, because they're both, like, shaking their fists in the air, and they're, like, layered right on top of each other. You know, you've yeah. got one guy saying, like, I don't even care if it's friendly fire or from the enemy. It's all the same. Yeah, this, it's all this, pointless. this amputee, this guy who's just had, like, his leg blown off in some, like, in mm-hmm. presumably the First World War. Yeah, and then the kids, so that we're introduced to, like, the main Paul Street boys at this point, and... You know, the the teacher reveals his hypocrisy because he busts them for passing a note. And the note is about, like, how their street gang needs to, like, organize or their turf's going to be stolen. Yeah, it's for, like, the presidential election that they need to hold, right? That's right, yeah. Mm -hmm. They're electing a a new president of the gang. And the teacher's like, yeah, this is bullshit. Like, you need to disband your gang. And it's like, again, yeah, he's just saying the opposite of what he was just saying. And they, they don't really... They don't really listen to him, yeah. you know? And I think that's, right off the bat, the film, like, is is sort of, like, establishing its, its thesis, right, of this really challenging relationship that nations have with war, that, that also cinema has with war, yeah. particularly, right? That it's like, here's this awful thing that just destroys people, kills people, maims people. It's horrifying, and yet it's often turned into an adventure, right? Or we're told in our history, like, how important this war was, what it gave us, what it brought us, what it, what it you know, provided for us as a nation moving forward in this world. And, and we're immediately in this, like, really confusing place of, like, wait, so which is it? It's bad? It's good? Like, it's, it's formative? It's not? It's a curse? It's a blessing? You know, and it's it's like the film is constantly playing with that double standard, yeah. as you put it, like this hypocrisy of, you know, war being something that we should avoid at all costs. And yet also like, well, I mean, always or like, you know, yeah. like- I mean, in the case of this film, I think throughout, I mean, there is it's all about comradeship and how that's actually like beautiful and good in Borzaghi's mm-hmm. eyes, right, throughout this film. But that is at odds again with, yeah, the, the physical violence or even, you know, emotional violence of the things that, like, these kids are going through in this, like, you know. I mean, this is also, like, you know, when we say they're playing war, I mean, they're really, like, actually warring as well. Like, <laughs> yeah. as the film... And there's there's actual territory that they're claiming and, like, reclaiming yeah. through, you know, physical encounters. Yeah, it's a literal land dispute, and the film does climax with about ten minutes of, like, 
you know, sand grenades being thrown, traps being set. They're all sort of like they got fucking spe- spears. Yeah, they have spears. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, there's some. Yeah, there's some like violent stuff that that ultimately like builds up. Yeah, um, kids get fucking knocked out cold in these like right. fights. <laughs> yeah, and but but that's also like part of the milieu, right? Is that they're poor. All of these kids are poor, and the thing you know specifically, we should say. So I'm gonna lay out here the Paul Street Boys for you. The main kid that we follow that uh, I mentioned earlier, Nemechek, is, yeah, the sort of, like, weakling of the group who's kind of derided and, like, the butt of every joke. In command, you have President Boca, General Boca, once, uh, you know, they they shift out of peacetime. You've got Lieutenant Garib, who's the second in command, and he betrays the Paul Street Boys to the Red Shirts uh, in this territorial dispute. And then there's uh, Chinakis, whose defining features are that he has freckles and he likes to eat bananas. And those are kind of like, those are like the four featured Paul Street Boys, but the gang is about, I think it's 22 the vote is at the beginning uh and the vote's like 20 to 2 uh for the president boca and and boca the president of the paul street boys the general of the paul street boys is yeah he's like a sam fuller character but a a a 10 year old you know who's just like (laughs) barking orders with like a steely resolve uh and is very like gruff attention men we've got to do something about those red shirts I can see right now, those red shirts are going to try and come in here and drive us away from this lot. We're not going to let them get away with it. Even if it means war! And that, yeah, like, he's he's a treat, just like this very, like, self-serious kind of, like, leader type. And then otherwise, yeah, their rivals are the red shirts, who are, like, more teenagers, they're older, they've got their cool gang spot in a botanical gardens, but what sort of animates the plot is that they're, they've been making too much noise at the botanical gardens, <laughs> and the guy who was letting their gang meet there is, like, no longer cool with it. Yeah, because they like. Out. <laughs> They're getting kicked out, and so they want to take over the lumber yard, which is a vacant lot. And so they're like, this intel is all sort of like betrayed through Lieutenant Garib of the Paul Street Boys. Who, it's revealed later in the film, is a wealthy lad. Like, he comes from money when his father right. shows up. After he's sort of betrayed the Paul Street Boys mm-hmm. and has been, you know kicked out for his, you know, for his... Um, treachery. For his treachery, yeah. The dad comes and is like, my boy came home crying last night. What the hell's going on here? He says... <laughs> and he's, like, got a very nice suit on. Yeah. He's got a cane. He is from some money, you know, which I think adds a little bit to that tension there and that class tension that certainly gets brought up several times throughout the film. Yeah, because you know? we only otherwise see Nemechek's uh, parents who are poor tailors, you know, down mm-hmm. the street from the lumberyard, and they are, you know, th- you know, they're really struggling. Hand to mouth. And uh, so Nemechek, this like, you know, this sort of like weak little blonde child, uh, he he wants to just like, you know, this is like his whole life, right? Like his parents are working all the time and like this is where he's found meaning in his life, even though he's the smallest, the weakest and the stupidest of the bunch. 
this is still like his thing, you know? And like so much of the film revolves around his like religious devotion to the Paul Street boys at any cost because like he throughout the film demonstrates great bravery over and over and over again. At a certain point, he just becomes like, you know, so gung ho that nothing can stop him, even though he's like falling out of trees and falling into rivers and, and always messing up to the point where he even, you know, impresses and wins over the, the leader of the red shirts, the rival gang who is so moved by his, bravery his willingness to to stand up against all odds like when Nemechik like goes back alone and is like willing to try to take on the whole red shirt gang by himself and the, the red shirt boys are like let's just stomp this fucking idiot and and the leader fairy ots stops them and is like no we're giving him safe passage out of here because of how fucking brave he is how honorable and noble he sees you know, uh, Nemechek as like, right. Even as a rival that he's like, you're playing it right. You know, you're doing this the right way, the way it should be done. And that's really a, like a great moment in the film because it deepens Borzaghi's allegory. Because again, it's like you're, you're situated with the Paul street boys and it's like the red shirts, you know, they're introduced as like literally stealing their marbles, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> there's, you know, there's a scene under a bridge and like the, the red shirts come up, they're like, hey, you dopes, like give us your marbles. And they yeah. just like sort of like, you know, take them <laughs> and, and leave. And it's like, oh, they're our enemy. They want to take our, our lumber yard. But in this scene that we're talking about when Nemechek uh, goes alone to spy on them to get intel, when we then see that like the leader of the red shirts is like a compassionate thoughtful like nice guy mm-hmm. who then just like protects Nemechek in this situation and then even makes everyone salute him mm-hmm. and that's like one of those like Murnau moments when Nemechek walks across the bridge and it's like two guards are holding their spears over him in like this arch and there's like this like light coming through the tree in the distance it's like crazy and it's all just like the scent Nemechek he went so hard you know well and again Nemechek really did yeah yeah too too hard as we will discuss (laughs) yeah Yeah. but but no I mean like again it's it's a great point because going back even to the very beginning and and the inclusion of the footage from All Quiet on the Western Front because the, the the mission of that novel and of the the film that was made right was to humanize all sides of that conflict you know and there's like the really powerful moments in that and then the particular scene when when paul baumer the german soldier um in all quiet on the western front when he kills that french soldier in the in the shell hole and spends the night with him you know with his with his corpse with this like this ghost of a of a former human being and connects with him and is like we could have been pals and he he opens up his wallet and he's like reading you know like oh you were a you were like a paper hanger i i i knew a guy who was a paper hanger you know and that like connection and i so i think there's so much of that like that came out of the first world war especially by the end of it and in the films that were made in the the late 20s into the 30s you still have that sense of comradeship between the sides that would, by the end of the 30s, be totally gone, especially in Hollywood, right? You, you, mm-hmm. you no longer saw 
things like that coming out of Hollywood. So this comes at a point when I think those wounds were still so fresh and people never wanted to see them torn open again. Well, and very pointedly, the the old man that looks over the, the lumber yard is a... Uh, a veteran that's missing an arm and and he has mm-hmm. you know some very like again as ryan pointed out like rhetorical obvious commentary moments where he's just condemning all war you know for eternity for its bullshit <laughs> and the arm he lost you know yeah but i think we should talk a little bit more about s- specifically nemechek and his journey then throughout all of this um and we they, we're talking about how he's like earning the respect of the, the red shirts but then he also sort of kind of you know gains respect from his fellow compatriots uh through his you know his dedication at first they're like very put off by him and he's just you know the private and they don't want to like elevate him amongst the ranks constantly he's kind uh, of like... writing him up in the black book in <laughs> the black little book. small letters yeah. yep yeah he's he's got so many demerits that he's like disparaged in the little black book um and it's got like my favorite line in the film is when they're doing that like reconnaissance mission at night you know and they're like out in the botanical gardens and he falls into the river a second time and he He's chastised by, you know, his superior by saying, You've got to take a bath. Why don't you wait till you get home? I'm sorry, sir. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. like, enough of this never check. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, the, like it's like this poor guy, right? Like he, he he's, he's he's at first he's sort of like the comedic relief, right? Like you know he's when they he's already wet, so they tell him like, why don't you hide out in the little water here? And like he, you know, he puts like a lily pad on his head and he like has a face off with a frog. Yeah, it's a nice um, little comedic routine they got going. Yeah, and then eventually he like sneezes himself out of the tree. But yeah, no, Nemechek goes too hard, and then he starts to get ill and that becomes sort of like that's what it's like the quiet drama in the middle that then becomes like the central drama as like the factions are like kind of like building up into war yeah all that time spent in the water yeah well yeah the causation in the film is kind of like the red shirts do dunk him for trespassing and spying on him they give him a good dunk and then he starts to yeah he starts to come down with a cold and uh again you know not a lot of money in in the household and uh so and also the 1930s yeah. like i love that too because it's like medicine wasn't great yeah i mean it was just it was the time period where kids could just like die i know i love <laughs> it dude because in the movie he's like he's like i'm not that sick <coughs> and then the doctor's like he's fucking dying you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is like very sudden you know obviously hollywood movie but also yeah uh, again the time period and that's one thing i i wanted to mention as well is this is not just a world war one film this is a depression film and very, again, like leaning into that as well, just as it's very much a film that is following that post-World War One anti-war sort of angle. It's also like, yeah, about your community and your homies and like helping each other out and like ultimately that's sort of like where the film is leading as Nemechek takes to his uh you know, deathbed ostensibly, uh, and uh, the the conflict you know between the sides has like you know escalated to there. They've decided on uh, you know they're going to fight over the lot, but the Nemechek sickness like ties into all of this, where like 
his illness sort of like spreads this like compassion amongst yeah, everyone. It galvanizes mm-hmm. both sides. Yeah. yeah. Because, because in a way, I mean, I guess this is obvious, but that his illness is a, you know, less a result, I guess, of, you know, uh, literally of him getting dunked, but, you know, metaphorically, <laughs> his illness is a result of like the way they've been taught to treat each other and to interact with each other and how to solve their problems. Um, I mean, one of the first moments in the, in this like gradual descent, uh, to, to his like sickly death is the first signs of it is like, they're like walking him down the street and he's like a little hazy and he like reaches out, you know, and says hi to the professor. And they say like, Oh, the professor's not there. (laughs) And it's like, here he is in his sickness. And it's like, who is he seeing the specter of? He's seeing the specter of the guy who's been telling him, you know, that there is nothing more finer than patriotism and like, you know, fighting in a militant way for what you believe in. And so here he is, like as his senses are failing him, it's like, that's what he sees. And that's what he thinks is out there. Well, and when he's in his bed and Boca, comes to visit him there's another like German expressionist style optical trick where it's all distorted and and crazy looking and it's from Nemechek's point of view and it's of Boca like a like a ghost distorted and superimposed over the room in this like crazy wide angle and Boca is like saying the stuff that their teacher was saying yeah. about war and like nationalism. He's like dressing him down. Yeah. And he's like basically again, he's what he's hallucinating of Boca is like not what Boca yeah. would be saying. Yeah, Boca's or doing. like, stay in bed. We don't need you. And yeah. then he's like hallucinating Boca being like, You gotta get out there, you stupid little lazy sack of shit. <laughs> absolutely right and it's again you're right ryan like the film really does you know show you like that as he's like getting sick and losing his faculties it's like what remains is like this ideology of war that's like Mm -hmm. (laughs) compelling him yeah like when all when everything is truly failing him and like the guy he's probably not eating you know he's like not responding to most things the thing he keeps calling out is i want to go to war because he knows that the battle is impending and it's not that like i want to feel better or it's like that's that is like his life has become that goal. He wants to feel the rush of war. He wants to contribute to his fellow compatriots. He wants them to see him as like a valid equal. He wants his name, you know, taken out of the black book. He he wants to, to earn his right to fight alongside them. Cause they even give him like an honorarium position in bed. Like, Oh no, like you're, you're not a private yeah. anymore. Yeah, you're like, a captain you're, now. You're, Just you're, you're a captain They finally now. promote him and give him his cap, yeah. which he like puts on mm-hmm. in bed while he's crying. <laughs> yeah, dude. With the doctor visits, too, and, and like the mother's like, is he going to be all right? And the doctor's like, oh, yeah, he's fine. He's fine. Then he's like, can I talk to you? Talks to, take the, takes the dad out of the room. And he's like... He ain't got long to live. I didn't want to tell your wife, but he fucking like just <laughs> yeah. make him comfy or whatever. It's an incredibly tragic moment too when the father says, like, listen, we are a poor family and we have like so little to offer, but like I will tailor you, you know, the fire. I'll make you a suit. I'll make you a suit, like as many suits as <laughs> yeah. you need, like just make my boy better. Yeah. And the doctor's like, eh, it's nineteen thirty four, man. Like I 
there's very little there's I can not do much as a I doctor. Do. Like, yeah, he's like time in history. He's like I listen to his chest. All right, I'm telling you, like he's fucked. Yeah, <laughs> and there's a really brutal moment when Nemechek is getting worse and worse, and he's hallucinating, and a customer comes into the shop, and it's like this fucking asshole who just like wants his suit tailored and his double-breasted jacket. Yeah, and like Mr. Nemechek's like. Yeah, my son is like dying in the next room, and the guy's like, "That's too bad." Now, here's the thing: like the armpit on this jacket, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. you know, like he's doing like a gesture of like drinking with the jacket, and he's like, "No, that's too tight right there. I yeah. can't get this." Drink yeah, it it's a really life. devastating like cross-cutting sequence because like you hear the whistle faintly coming and like things getting knocked over, and when we cut in, it's usually like. Nemechek from behind like you can't even see his crazed face as he's just like clawing things in the room and you know trying to find his way to some sort of armed combat but you're right Marsh I mean in that moment too I think is it's a great observation that you bring up about it not just being this sort of like allegory of of you know the pointlessness of war but as this like depression era film as well like you really start to see it and and as it develops and it's like yeah all these poor kids for the most part and and they're fighting over dirt you know they're being sent off to just like just to to suffer basically to to kill each other Mm -hmm. poor people killing poor people right that very sort of like marxist critique of of war not saying that that's you know poor zagy's like a marxist (laughs) or anything like that but you know that's the idea, right? Is is that, you know, who fights the wars? It's the poor people, you know? And they fight it for for what? For for a flag or for, you know, a symbol that that just exists inside some palace somewhere? Well, and there's like a cosmic like a, a devastating cosmic ironic ending moment as well when it's revealed that the lumberyard lot is not going to belong to either of the gangs because there's a brand new apartment development that's going in mm-hmm. on the lot. So again, it's like even even you know on top of the Nemechek sort of like martyr thing, which we need to get into in a second. But yeah, just like oh yeah, uh, yeah, they're building a huge building yeah. here. It's all meaningless. Like, and exactly, all it's all suffering. meaningless, right? And it, it goes back to what the the lumberyard old man says, you know, because he's at some point there's like another old guy with him, and he's sort of laughing at all the kids <laughs> fighting, and the you know the veterans like, no, this isn't funny. This is this is war. This is it. This is as real as as any war on a smaller scale. But it's it's still yeah it's a still much the smaller same thing. scale right but <laughs> it's the still kids the, are tiny the the sentiment is there and that's why like you're saying like he doesn't like laugh at them and and he like tragically says that that it's like yeah no, it's just gonna be a stuff it's gonna be a fucking apartment house after all this you know and yeah who wins in it. the end you know and that's sort of his point uh, I do like that he compares the lumberyard to uh, Lorraine and Manchuria he says it's all the same. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And that's yeah. it. It's an inc- it's a really incredible like final battle too. Um, oh yeah, it, like kind of. It's like a mixture of both like shooting it like real combat photography, well like a very elegant like melodramatic combat photography, but then also like a little rascals styled playfulness in terms of them like setting traps for each other. It's like that kind of kids inventing. Um, like a very practical way of like you know trapping each other because they they're not fighting with bullets. Yeah. <laughs> you know? 
<laughs> but yeah, they like set up like an incredible rig where um, what's his name? The kid with the freckles. Oh God! Uh, he was the one that like kind of sounded like Ward Bond. Banana Boy. Yeah, Chinakis. Chinakis. Yeah, he's they got him like seated atop a shack, and he has like a bunch of strings, and he's got like a big knife, and whenever he cuts a string, it lets loose a board that is then controlled by a bag that's presumably filled with like rocks or bricks that like seals the boys like into those shacks. So it's like an incredible moment where they've got three of them lined up and they trap a bunch of the red shirts um, inside, and then you see you see the brittle wood like shaking as they're trying to push themselves mm-hmm. out of the doors you know what it reminded me of uh, and just so i can call back to a previous episode but reminded me of abel Gantz's napoleon which opens with a snowball fight at the boarding school napoleon's at and it's this you know silent era like handheld roving camera very immersive kind of like kids war thing and i immediately was like oh this is like napoleon like yeah this really like kicks ass because it is just like yeah you have comedy but you also again have just like this really immersive and elegant expressionistic kind of quality as well end of like you know, again, is like a sort of portrait of childhood too, you know, like the idea as children that for you, you know, the stakes are so high, are so high for something that, again, you know, from the adult perspective is just kind of like, man, this lumberyard, they're going to turn this thing into a fucking condo or whatever. But like, it means everything to them. The whole world. Yeah. And for Nemechik. And as you've, you know, alluded to, like his, his like martyrdom, right? That this kid is essentially like on death's door. And even the other boys are kind of like, hey, man, it's just like a scrap between a couple gangs, you know, but it's not, you know, Nemechik being presumably one of, if not the youngest, you know, like it has the most meaning for him, you know, as, Mm -hmm. as for children, you do get so worked up about little things you know whether it's like some prized toy that you have or you know like going to the party that everyone else is and being told by your parents you can't because you're sick or whatever and it's like yeah you don't understand if i don't go to the party like i might as well just fucking die you know (laughs) like i mean that's (laughs) but like what you're saying is exactly what i think both of these films most have in common and it's like that beautiful quality of the severity of the little things during childhood like things meaning so much of course it's given to us in very different ways in both films but it all does amount to the same thing is that all these little things like truly do mean the world to a child when they're encountering it because they don't have that like adult perspective like all the little things and my little loves like register so strongly and he communicates that by like presenting it like very delicately to us and here it's all very blunt and you feel that severity you feel like that intensity of like what they believe in and how important it all is i mean the kid's dying you know (laughs) nevichik is literally dying and he's like i need to go to war and then then yeah then we get that martyrdom that we see him break out of you know the back room of the tailor shop and then he like essentially is like running down the middle of an extremely busy intersection in like an incredible (laughs) rear projection sequence where we see his like he's fading you know his makeup looks crazy and he's just like charging down the street as there's like a giant car behind a truck bearing down on him like (laughs) even even too like talking about those stakes for like 
you know, another character that we sort of brought up earlier, like Garib, the the traitor, you know, and how that betrayal is presented and how like devastating it is first to the Paul Street boys when they find out like, what the hell? This guy, he turned, he went to the other side on us. He helped them get our flag. And now he's told them how to like sneak in here to like take advantage of our weaknesses like they're so crushed and they like they turn their backs on him and then when he garib like sort of realizes through nemechek right this is important to point out right that when garib's dad comes and is like why'd you kick my kick my son out of the gang nemechek lies to the Mm -hmm. dad because he's afraid and it's kind of implied it's like dad was gonna beat the shit out of him uh because he's like what do you mean my son's a traitor? Yeah. And Nemechek, you know, stands up, youngest kid there, and he goes, no, you're right, he isn't. Yeah. It was a mistake. It was a, you know, uh, he's he's good. He's with us. He would never betray us. And they all kind of realize that, and Garib is just, like, so, you know, so wrecked by it, you know, and, like, really realizes what he did, you know, that honor is like so much more important, you know, in that moment, it's like so crushing. And that's like when he has this big, like return to them, you know, and I loved it. Cause again, it's like, like you said, they're there. They, they talk like adults, you know? Yeah. And Garib, <laughs> like I've been saying it all day. Like there's the line. And he's like, told him I was a Paul street boy and I'd stay a Paul street boy until the day I died. You know, like, <laughs> like, it also fits in really nicely with what we were talking about, uh, what you brought up, Andy, about um, <laughs> like being a kid and encountering something, and then like like oh I'm gonna be a magician or like you know like then and like enacting it. Um, this very much feels like a group of kids who are like imitating both like their perception of like the military, but like specifically military through cinema, yes. right? Like because they're talking like soldiers that you see. Yes, in films. absolutely. And it's funny. I think I mentioned this. Like I was gonna tell you guys this story but like you know this movie really really connected with me also and i'd never seen this movie before i'd never even heard of this movie before but you know i was it should be pretty obvious to people who don't know at this point but i'm just like a a kid who grew up like fascinated with you know the military gi joes all that same stuff marsh that you were talking about and the army and i loved playing war and guns and and so much of my fascination was, you know, because I grew up watching lots of war films. My dad loved war films and was always showing me war films. So I would play war with the boys in the neighborhood. We loved playing war. And I actually got in trouble once. Like, I had to get talked to by my parents because I was allowed to, like, my dad let me watch movies that, like, a lot of other kids my age weren't watching. And I watched a lot of, like, Vietnam war films my dad had, like, let me watch. And, like, I can't remember which war film it was, but, like, I saw this thing in the movie where, like, a guy got, like, wounded and he didn't want to be captured by the enemy because it was like, oh, it's, it's worse to be captured by the enemy. So, like, they gave him a gun and he, like, blew his brains out, you know, to avoid being captured because he was wounded. So, like, in my young, like, nine-year-old brain, I was just like, if you get wounded, you got to kill yourself. So, like, apparently we were playing in the front yard and, like, I was instructing all the boys that, like, as soon as you get wounded, you have to blow your brains out and shoot yourself in the head. <laughs> and so, like, the mom, like, looked out the window and was like, she kept seeing, like, kids kind of get, like, oh, like, gut shot and then, like, pull out a fake gun and, like, shoot themselves in the head. <laughs> 
Because I saw the movie and I was like, that's oh. what you do, you know? And Holy like, fuck. she called my mom. And like, they got very upset. And my mom was like, she was like, why is your son teaching everyone to kill themselves? Like, for this stupid thing. Wow, you brought the war to, to Bensonville Elmhurst long before uh, orders. The stakes were you. very high. The stakes were very high on the on the front lawn, you know? Holy fuck. Yeah. God damn. <laughs> yeah, we, we played a lot of war. Like, we had woods in my backyard. Um, so we played a lot like I would often film it too so we'd make like little war films but yeah we very frequently played war but we we definitely weren't like fucking blowing our brains out uh, <laughs> as this part of the routine Andy's <laughs> gritty Vietnam reboot of the neighborhood <laughs> yeah. war game yeah dude yeah do you guys ever have like territorial disputes with other kids like they do in No Greater Glory I thought like the, I like wish I had experienced something that grand like taking a bit of land and like teaming up with a bunch of other guys to try and like take over other group of land you know <laughs> no uh we we didn't have anything quite like that you know like no i mean yeah but man yeah, yeah i mean it's it's a bummer that nemechek dies but it does like kind of look like a, a shit ton of fun i mean just like <laughs> the idea of like making those traps and then like also just like patrolling the botanic gardens at night like on those misty nights like oh my god yeah they got like a they got a parade detail like it's like yeah it's it's not they're not rinky dink little like you know reenactors here this is like the full nine yards they got uniforms they got all kinds of shit yeah they got a whole chain of command they got the little black book they got all kinds of stuff one you know actually i think my favorite part of the movie is like right before the the battle uh, Boca's reading like the military tactics in the Great World War book and they have like a big meeting and he's like all right we're gonna fortify the defenses this that and the other he's got like a tactical retreat planned and then they're like and then what and he's like I don't know yet I'll have to read a couple more chapters it's as far as I got it's like the funniest fucking moment because it's like those moments that like shatter the the illusion of like their their seriousness in their like playing play acting and, and it's like oh yeah they're just kids yeah. like this they have no idea what they're doing <laughs> again these are like also for me the moments where like the 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 anti-war you know almost like satirical elements continue to sort of invade you know that yes this is also a story about children and like kids being kids and and trying to play grown-up and stuff like that but also yeah the critique of war and again from the perspective of the first world war which was this like awful tactical fuck up where it didn't seem like anybody actually had any idea like what to do they just threw these armies against one another and they were like well shit that's not really working. What do we do now? I don't know. Like, we're kind of making this up as we go along. Keep going. Keep trying, you know? Maybe we'll use more men, you know? Like, that kind of thing. It's the same idea, you know? That it's like, who's got the plan? And and again, I think it's also poignant that, you know, from the get-go, as we talked about, they're all officers. Yeah. <laughs> they're, that Nemechek is the only one who's not an officer. Well, that's what he says to his mom. He's like, they need me. I'm their only <laughs> private. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you've got an entire army of fucking captains and generals, and they're all making shit up as they go along, you know. And I love that Nemechek too is like, "What about 
<laughs> he points to like the bugler, you know, and he's like, what about him? He's just a dumb bugler. And they're like, well, we need a bugler. Like, we got to have a bugler. Like, what the hell? Like, well, that's a recurring element is uh, the bugler is great, by the way. But Nemechek wants to like whistle like the commands and like, you know, yeah. gang stuff. But like, he's really bad at whistling. And <laughs> yeah. that's, again, a like recurring gag throughout the entire film is yeah his finger whistle, which doesn't hold a candle to the bugle. <laughs> yeah, No. And is especially distressing when it's like a whistle of death as he's like in sickness and trying to get out of the back room of the tailor. <laughs> yeah. Shop. And there's like other funny bits, too. Like there's a part where Boca, like as they're preparing for that final battle, like, they, I mean, this is an incredibly like sharp film, I think, you know, it's it's if you really like read it and look into it, like it's, it's really savvy. It's really sharp. There's like a really funny bit where Boca's like sort of walking and they're kind of like, you know, going over the defenses before the big battle. And there's like one of the sentries of the, the Paul street boys like stops Boca, the general. And it's like, who goes there? You know, like, Oh, who goes there? You know, and Boca's like, it's me. I'm the general. He's like, let me see your papers or whatever your identification. And Boca's like, don't you know your own general? And then he walks away and he says to one of the other kids that he's walking with, he's like, I'm going to put that guy in front of a firing squad. (laughs) (laughs) It's It's really funny. It's like this stupid, like little like exchange. But again, it's like, war is fucking ridiculous. Like, and that's really, I think a huge, a huge, huge aspect of this movie that like, it's basically war is just scaling up, you know, yeah. like that's what Borzegi is saying here. It, you just scale it up from here. It's the same fucking circus, you know, it's the same just, just play acting. And Borzegi resolves the first world war in this film by uh, presenting Nemechek as a, uh, a kind of like religious martyr or even political martyr in this sense. And so the film ultimately climaxes with the dying uh, Nemechek running down the street to the lumber yard where he finally arrives, you know, in the middle of this battle as it's reached its fever pitch. Everyone's wailing on each other and hitting each other with sticks. And then they all stop when they see that Nemechek has shown up and the true comrade he is to the end, he faces down, you know, the leader of the red shirts and takes a swing at him in his delirium because, again, he's, like, hallucinating. He's about to die. Uh, And he, to the end, you know, he's fighting. Yeah, and his fingers are clutching, like, his his. His dead kid hand is like clutching the flag, the Paul yeah. Street Boy flag. And there's again, you know, <laughs> it's an extreme close up lit with care, you know, in that like old Hollywood way. And so effectively, yeah, it's like Nemechek, you know, for all his, you know, his efforts, right? Yeah, he, yeah, he, you know, war essentially in his like desire to be a part of it, you know, leads to, yeah, sickness and death. And then his mother shows up in the lumberyard and Borzegi gives us the full Pieta, you know, all the kids surrounding her lit like fucking, you know, like the, the goddamn Bible or whatever. Yeah. Uh, like and Virgin Mary. Yeah. And then she carries him out with all the boys from both sides. Like Nemechek's death has like created this peace 
uh, essentially. And then they have like a funeral for him, the send off where they all like salute and they're all crying and like glowing eyelights. It's again, yeah, Borzaghi really lays it on, <laughs> lays it on in this moment. And again, that's even where, the bugler cries. That's right. And again, that's where this sort of, again, this like spiritual side of Borzaghi really comes out. And you see it in his romances and you see it in some of his other films. But yet here it just comes, you know, something out, you know, this like this whole spiritual thing. Because what he's saying with this movie, right, is like this death was can be seen as a positive thing. Right. Like just as you said, his sickness like galvanized everyone and everyone was sort of like treating each other with respect and stuff like that, that it's like his death has allowed this peace, you know? So there is this some otherworldly sort of like aspect to it. And the the brilliance being that sort of like multi-level kind of uh, critique, the, the multi-level reading even that you find there of like, you know, like that's where, you know, Borzegi's really playing with this like paradox that especially like cinema perpetuates, yeah. you know, that Truffaut famously like called out when he was like, there's no such thing as an anti-war film because by nature of movies and particularly like war films, they often make war exciting and they show sacrifice and, and even anti-war films fall into that trap of, of us identifying with the side and often rooting for it, you know? And so, you know, Truffaut was like, ah, oh, there's no such thing as an anti-war film. I don't, agree with Truffaut, but I see his point, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's exactly what Borzegi, way ahead of his time, is playing with. It's this idea that, like, yes, on the one level, from from the children and from their perspective, they see this, like, sacrifice as meaningful, and, and like, you, you use the word, like, transcendence, and, like, yes, <laughs> Nemechik transcends his, like, you know, weak, earthly body to become this this martyr, this figure that these boys will will talk about with reverence for the rest of their their pathetic lives, you know, in this like slum mm -hmm. that they live in, you know. <laughs> but th then Borzegi like immediately undercuts it with that the two guys then sitting there and just being like, yeah, and this thing's just gonna be a goddamn apartment fucking building <laughs> or whatever, you know. And it's like, you know, it's all so fucking like meaningless, you know, that like he's on the one hand giving us this sort of like exciting and moving and powerful like you know, kids, but, but like a war film, but then he's also like completely like cutting that shit off at its knees. And just when you start to like buy into it and feel it, you know, he's immediately smacking you with reality. This, this fucking veteran missing an arm being like, man, <laughs> this is all fucking bullshit. These dumbass kids don't even realize it yet, you know? So it's like, there's just so many layers here that, that I think really add to this movie, like being, one of, I would argue, like the more powerful anti-war films I've ever seen, you know, on that level. Because it isn't just being like, we're an anti-war film. Like, it's also like pointing its finger at cinema particularly. Not just at war, but at the depiction of war. Well, this week, Ryan, it was your turn to uh, pick the topic. So what would uh, what would you have picked? Or what's like a portrait of childhood that you are a, a fan of? This will be the second time that I've brought this filmmaker into my uh, what would I have picked selection, but I have a <laughs> very special 
you know, love for the films of Don Coscarelli, uh, <laughs> most famous for Here we his go. work in Phantasm, uh, of which I am a loyal um, a freak. Freak. <laughs> um, but he has, so before he made the Phantasm films, he has an incredible portrait of childhood called Kenny and Company. Kenny and Company is a it's a film that didn't get a ton of distribution. I think most people probably know it from when it played on HBO a lot in like the in the nineties. Um, it was just one of those films that had circulation on TV quite a bit. I encountered it after that. Like I, I had never watched it on TV. It was more like I was like on a Coscarelli kick, and it's just an incredibly beautiful film that's set around Halloween. So that's also another reason that it really registers with me. But it's just about two twelve-year-olds like skateboarding, having a good time, goofing off at school, pulling pranks on each other. Um, and experiencing like a suburban Halloween, which was always one of my favorite times of years growing up in the suburbs. So yeah, as a portrait of childhood, it's one that registers very strongly with me. And you know, one day hopefully I'll I'll bring it on the pod if, to to lighten things up a little bit again one day. Um, but yeah, Kenyan Company is is uh, is definitely one of my, one of my all time favorites. Maybe when we do Coscarelli week. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, one day I'll just <laughs> I'll just do it. I'll just make you guys <laughs> pick a Coscarelli oh. movie just so I can watch him again. Um, yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah, so thank you again, both of you, for such incredible portraits of childhood. You know, it's it's a it's a tough prompt because you know the most readily available stuff are the types of coming of age films that you know you had talked about a little bit, Andy. And I think both of you subverted that idea in really beautiful ways. Uh, I you know, but yeah, having the chance of like watch them and then watch them back to back um, was it was a special viewing experience for sure. Um, but yeah, so it was it this was this was my pick. So Marsh, what do you have for us next week? Well. If this week's episode of The Gauntlet sounds different, it's because we have a different recording setup. Because Ryan has moved across the country. <laughs> and specifically to the Seattle area. And so I was thinking for the prompt, let's get, let's get regional. The topic for next week is... Sleepless in Seattle. Because, of course, I imagine Ryan's going to be having a lot of sleepless nights thinking about us and missing us so far away from the Windy City. Okay, great. Sleepless in Seattle. <laughs> As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at Gauntlet Movie Podcast at Gmail. Com. Thanks, everyone. President of what? Another club? You know how implicitly I forbade the forming of any kind of a club. This is different. We have to, to protect our playground. What playground? The vacant lot in the lumberyard in Paul Street. You see, sir? It's the only vacant lot in the whole neighborhood. It's the only place we have to play in. We love it, and we swear to be free forever and protect it with our lives. Je t'ai gardé dans mon cœur.